We are gathered here today to celebrate the life of a wonderful film. A film yet to be experienced by far too many whilst being greatly adored by those lucky enough to have discovered it. Oh, those who have discovered it. How did you discover it? Most of you met The Living Wake because of Jim Gaffigan or Jesse Eisenberg, but all of you stayed for Mike O'Connell's K. Roth Banu in all of his flawed, eccentric wonder. It is okay to cry, but only happy tears. Do not mourn, for today is a day of celebration. Like a bottle of the finest stubborn grouse bourbon, the living wake has not expired, but has been waiting for you, getting tastier with the years. Pop the cap, drink it in, become intoxicated by its potent contents, for today we celebrate the legacy of the living wake. Twas a wise soul who once proclaimed via a title card insert, a man is only as good as his living wake, and Mike O'Connell's living wake is so, so, so good. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Apollo, God of music, arts, and poetry, son of Zeus, let's get on with this thing. What the f is up, internets? Am I so excited for today's show? That is a rhetorical question. Absolutely, I'm excited for today's show. Before we get into what we are doing on today's show, just want to remind you. First of all, thank you very much for watching. Second of all, if you are watching and haven't subscribed, why the f not? Please subscribe now. Hit the bell. Get notifications when we post new episodes. We post a new episode covering a new film every Thursday. We post highlights to that episode every following Tuesday. We try to include interviews, lots of facts, good discussion, and... Uh, and that's the opening thank you no no thank you this week coming up guys we have something you will not believe we are discussing a well not known soul film called the living wait yeah so for all my woke people out there this film is just for you and what i mean by just for you not for you at all this comes from a genre that is genre less i would like to call it broadway meets stage play meets hollywood meets independent yes yes that is a yeah that is a good combination uh for anybody, for most of you who don't know what The Living Wake is, first of all, it is my favorite film of all time. I said that in the last episode. I stand by it on this episode. Um, so it was really hard for me to contain myself on this episode. Um, this was your first time seeing it this weekend. Mm -hmm. um, and we will, of course, get to... Uh, I can't wait to get into that. But just to give, because I know most people haven't seen the movie. One, go check it out. It's on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Two, since you're here... This is what it is. It's a whimsically witty dark comedy seemingly existing in its own universe. It follows the journey of K. Roth Banu, a complicated man, after he has contracted a disease that is almost as grave in its vagueness as it is vague in its graveness. This is the last day of his life before he passes at 7.33 p.m. K. Roth sets out with his best and only friend, slash man, slash chauffeur, slash biographer Mills, played by Jesse Eisenberg, with less than 12 hours to live, to find the meaning of life while preparing for his wake service and eventual death later that evening. The day is filled with interesting interactions with different eccentric characters from around the town, often resulting in altercations or situations that are as poetic as they are hilarious. 
From an ongoing confrontation with his neighbor and rival Reginald, to gambling for alcohol with a liquor smith and disturbing a funeral director with requests for a Viking ceremony, a ghost sacrifice, nanny love, a prostitute, a failed attempt to distribute his literature to a public library, a failed attempt to reconcile with his mother and his brother, and a run-in with a swindling clockmaker where he ends up literally trying to buy time. After an absurd day that feels like the norm for K. Roth, it is time for his living wake where all of the characters that we met in are in attendance, providing a simple yet epic closing to a beautiful parable-like tale. That is my elevator pitch for this film. Check it out. You had me at Viking Funeral. That's where you had me. It's a badass film. Any film with a Viking funeral has to be a badass film. So that's where you had me at. So, uh... Yeah, that was like the first thing you said to me is that you wanted a Viking funeral. And that's which... how you knew that I had actually seen and watched the film. And uh, and I'll say this, like I um, as we discussed with uh, Mr. O'Connell earlier, is that this is something that had I seen the previews for, had I been told that was just the greatest thing ever and I saw it, I would have been completely let down because. Oh, I'm sorry, because you said Mike O'Connell earlier. That's earlier for us. We're still in tenant time. It'll be later for you guys. We do have Mike O'Connell on this episode, writer and lead actor of uh, play K. Roth Banu in The Living Wake. Have you interviewed my guest yet? Eh? Huh. All right. One of the first things, Durton, that really caught my attention in the film is like I'm paying attention because I'm doing my homework for this. And of course, the first thing that caught my attention was pipeline and motion pictures. Pimp. Yeah. Like that, that to me, that was that was funny. And hopefully we can get a chance to discuss that later with Mr. Mr. O'Connell and see what he uh, has to say about that. But that was one of the things that really caught my uh, caught my eyes. And one of the bigger things that caught my eyes, you know, how from week one to week two, week one, we did Black Panther. And then the second week we did Tenet. And you know how there was a, a segue between those. It was the composer. Now, of course, the, clearly the composer didn't work, work on this one. But one of the things that I found that was a segue is that. Intended of what we're talking about is time, time, time. And then when that scene where Canoe goes into that, he's first off, he's he's obsessed with time the whole film. He's talking about, you know, when his death's going to be, it pronounces his death at the beginning and mm-hmm. his time. And so he goes into that clock shop and I'm just like, man, I feel like I'm right back in Tenet. Like these movies are following themselves for a reason. Like they all are joined at the hip in some type of way. I have another connection for you for Black Panther to The Living Wake. If you look really closely in the funeral scene or the wake scene at the end uh i think if you're looking at the screen so it'd be like uh like four or five rows back five seats over like in the back right corner ish uh young michael b jordan fact oh, check me on that watch the movie and tell me if i'm wrong leave it in the comments uh so is it really him you'll have to see audience you'll have to see for yourself go watch it on amazon prime and uh, look for Michael B. Jordan in the final. You have to watch the whole thing. He's in the final scene. So. <laughs> I see what you did there. Do you? I think so. I hope they do, too. <laughs> okay. All right. There we go. All right. Um, but, yeah, before we wrap the elevator pitch, I just want to say this this movie, it, it will not be for everybody. Some of you will watch it and hate it. Some of you, uh, some of you will watch it and pick up its torch and run with it. Uh, it's one of those movies. It's polarizing. It's one of, that's what great movies are or should be. Um, but if you do find yourself into it, you will be pleasantly surprised. It is a, it, it exists in a universe all of its own and anything is possible. And it is, it's just like a full length feature of proverbs that are also hilarious. An enjoyable escape from reality. 
Yeah, yeah. While, but while still dealing with really, like, it manages to deal with really heavy issues like death, existentialism, um, yeah, yeah, all these things all, that we. But it, but it, but all it, in like twelve hours because he doesn't even have a full day. But we'll get into that. Yeah, yeah we'll get into yeah. that. Okay, let's uh, let's move on to. And that's the f-ing pitch. We're about to talk. We're about to talk during this movie. Whoop, whoop. All right. Um, so please, you begin because I've been dying to hear what. Uh, what you have to say okay okay i first and foremost the very first thing that i didn't i didn't even realize who the first off o'connell looks like o'connell and when we interview him later looks nothing like canoe because his hair is let down but the first thing i saw i said i almost thought it was plagiarism until i realized one movie came out first clearly the weight came out before the django unchained but now i i now i clearly know where they got the idea and how to dress uh leonardo dicaprio as 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 calvin candy it had to come from this film it's somebody from the django unchained the set dresser had to see o'connell as canoe do his hair yeah. His manner was like, I'm like, that's f-ing candy. It's Candyland. You know what I'm so saying? So you're saying that Leonardo DiCaprio is is one of the fans out there of The Living Wake. Either Leonardo DiCaprio or the person that dressed him. I'm fact check that. Yes, Le- I'm Leonardo saying Leonardo DiCaprio picks his own clothes. He makes his own decisions on the set. Hey, that's the cap. Nobody tells. And I'm yeah, not talking about tells. America. <laughs> that's America's ass. Yeah, nobody tells Arnie what to do. There you go. So that's one of the first things I noticed. But um, also about the character, and I'm I'm, I'm going to speak with uh, I'm going to speak with uh, O'Connell about this later. Is that his character? Uh, and forgive me for for the, for forgetting the guy's name. Our, our guy from Clue, the the head guy from Clue that we always talk about. Oh, about Tim Curry. Tim Curry. Okay. Yeah, I felt oh, like I was Angela watching. Gonna hate you well, that. she's not going to hate me because we got Tim Curry into an episode. She's going to love me. <laughs> Pulp Fiction, little love song. Anyway, but um, no, but we we had, I felt like Tim Curry, Barney Stinson, and McFarlane, who does Ted, the character Ted. Like I felt like all th- and, and my guy from and my guy from uh, 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 Modern Family. The, the gay uncle. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Like, like I'm feeling like all those characters were missing in one, and I enjoyed all of them. It's like he, the character, says what's on his mind, and he undoubtedly believes it. And to me, I'm a very confident person, and so for me to dive into that character, all I knew is I saw someone who firmly believed. But we'll get back to more talking points. I'm just telling you what I thought, and so please, I know you have a multitude, algorithms, <laughs> numeric codes, breakdowns. Oh, yeah, 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 a little, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Beautiful mind is coming up. Here we go in three. <laughs> To, uh, I will try to. I'm gonna try to condense this down. I am just. I'm very attracted to the absurdity of this movie. Um, like you said, it's a refreshing break from reality. It has, but it has just enough recognizable emotions, like what we, what we come to know from reality. It has, it has just enough of that sprinkled into this weird universe it's created, that it stays just grounded enough for it to hit home on certain subjects. Um, the line that the, uh, funeral director, rest in peace, uh, he, had, uh, coinc- not, I mean, not coincidentally, it's been a little while since the movie was made and he was an older gentleman at the time, but rest in peace. Anyhow, uh, the funeral director has passed away since then. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the line that he says sums up pretty much what I love so much about this movie. He says, uh, Death is a serious business and will be treated as such until it stops happening. And that right there, death is a serious business and will be treated as such. 
this movie does the exact opposite of that. And few movies dare to approach subjects like uh, death and, I mean, really just, just death and all of the things that come with that. Um, few movies dare to approach that from a comedic angle and few, even fewer movies are able to succeed in approaching it from a comedic angle. Uh, I think this one pulls off that balance beautifully. Um, so I do have a, uh, do you have, actually is for, do you have, do you have any uh, additional thoughts before I dive into a, a theory that I have about the movie? Yes. Uh, one thing I did want to bring up to you was, uh, I saw, I saw a three, three movies tied into this for me. And I don't think anybody else will put these three together. It was Talladega nights. It was the Truman show in this film. And one of the, the theories that I had, or not even theories, but one of the things that kind of combined these films wore me, like they all either went on what their, the words of their dad, like not necessarily in the Truman show. Cause he, he just saw his dad, uh, you know, get killed in water allegedly or whatnot. But they're like, I will say as far as the Truman show reference was that the dad from the Truman show. And then the dad from the living weight, they Jim Gaffigan, they, they had a lot of character, even how they were dressed was the same to me. But one of the main things from Talladega nights to, this i don't think anyone's made this reference like ricky bobby went off his dad saying you're first or you either first or your last and his dad was like man i was high as when i said that like man no of course you get a second or third you know he's bringing that shit up but but with with canoe he didn't get his dad's last word so whether you got him or not but no why do I keep saying Banu? Because canoe is a normal, normaler word. I said, that's the first time I've said that today. But, okay, three, two, one. And with Banu's father, he didn't get it. But not only worse than not getting his dad was like, hey, there's this one powerful, short little monologue thing. And then he gets apparently destroyed by beavers. I'm sorry, spoiler alert, which was amazing. You know what I'm yeah. saying? He's like, and then I found out he dropped a toy panda. I thought he had bought his kid a real koala bear or whatever it was like, i thought it was really a koala and he's like i dropped it and so i jumped the f-ing gate like i'm sorry i'm sorry go ahead man <laughs> no that was uh yeah i see the resemblance between his dad and it's it's that that problem that we all or the um the mistake that we all make with our parents is we all we eventually hopefully I'll get to a certain age where we realize we have that realization, that aha moment where ah, my parent is not this all knowing figurehead. They are human, just like me still figuring out. Mm. And you shouldn't really put too much weight on any words that they say. I like I like to put it as they're not superheroes, they're action figures. And what I mean by that is like, nah, they're on the front line. They're the ones with the Kung Fu group. They're not flying. Like, like, but as you grow up, you get to see it. And so to me, like I'm not I'll discuss it later, but with Banu, I really think that that everything that happened to him in his childhood, it fueled him and like and it and we'll talk about it later, but his dad kind of speaks to that. But go ahead. Any theories like from you seeing this back then? Because we know it was released. It was made in 2007 and released in 2010. So mm-hmm. you fell upon it. So what are your theories? Uh, so I will try to keep this theory um, as short and sweet as possible. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sum it up in a brief but powerful monologue. Okay. All right, so the whole experience feels more like a well-crafted parable than a traditional narrative. What are some clues that tell me I'm watching something that doesn't take place in reality as we know it? We know that diseases are not as punctual as the grave and vague disease that K. Roth has, and it's not possible for someone to be given the exact time of their death in advance unless, of course, that time was given to them by somebody that was about to murder them. Like, hey, you're about to die in three minutes. Minority report. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
we also know that the main characters in general are just kind of off. They're, they're, it's almost like they're performing on a stage in one of K. Roth Banu's productions. Um, so that was another clue. Um, the biggest one for me was w when they get to the clock shop. Uh, that really sold the idea for me that this was a parable of metaphors, how it explores the idea that time is an illusion, but we still try to buy ourselves more of it. How Mills, um, how Mills, the, the like Mills watch keeps breaking throughout the uh, story, almost as if it's a representation of him wanting more time with K. Roth as his only friend. Um, the fact that Mills watch starts working again on his way to do the Viking ceremony, like pretty much after he's accepted the fact that um, K. Roth is gone, that's when you hear his watch start ticking again. So that, that felt very metaphoric. Um, so if this is a parable, the purpose of a parable is to impart a message. So what is the message of the parable that is the living wake? I think it's a message about self-realization and the death of self. I think this becomes apparent in the final act, especially when K. Roth speaks to his father and finally experiences unbridled self-awareness followed by acceptance for who he truly is. He spends the whole day, the entirety of the film, trying to gain acceptance in some form from every character he encounters, but in the end, he finds that he just needed to accept himself to find true contentment. Thoughts? <laughs> I can tell that, see, it's one thing for people to say, hey, this is my favorite film. Like, don't tell me it's your favorite film. Tell me I need introspective. I need to know why it's your favorite film. And hearing you say that, you brought up several integral points that I couldn't even encompass or even think about because of the fact that you are correct with uh mills being able to like you say his clock breaking and then it it, 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 it happening again or even when even when he's in even when banu is in the the time clock when he's in the um basically the timekeeper shop or whatnot all the clocks are different times and he mm -hmm. says he's like which one's right he, he definitely asked him that so he, now he's trying to figure something like maybe it's going on in his head but furthermore yeah. the guy says well if you're not well he's like just tell me what time and he's like well if you're not going to buy a watch i can sell you time mm -hmm. so even hearing him say that like sell like even a funny funny part about that that's a line from a close line from that robert downey jr's uh, father or iron man's father in uh in game says uh no amount of money ever bought a second of time so even just hearing stuff like that, like time is a parable and they were in a different reality. So to me, it speaks to your point. It, and again, it shows like like it like it almost makes me think that I mean, that's what that was. That's not where I went with it. But it really makes me think that all of this really could have went on in his head. The approval of his parents trying to trying to do all these things. And one of the things that we and, and, and we'll talk about it later with o, with O'Connell or. Banu, whichever eccentric character he's being today. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that really got me about this film and why I said, you know what, it's a staple for me. It's almost a teaching film. This is a film I would, if I was a, a uh, basically a professor at um, Juilliard or somewhere, or film school, what I would do is, is I would show this film because to me, and like I said, this is a film, like if I was a professor at Juilliard at Florida State Film School or wherever, what I, the reason why I would show this is because when I look at this from news perspective and when you're trying to make a film i've lived that role i've lived the role of being a director i've lived the role of being a photographer an actor a voice actor a writer an extra going to pick up donuts craft yeah. services i've done all of those roles and to me it was always not about being accepted it was about 
what more do I have to do to show how good I am as being an actor, as an artist, as a thespian? So to me, when I'm not going to reveal the punchline at the end of the film, or should I say the what happens at the end of the film? But with that being said, to to hear them wrap that up and say, but you were never scared. Mm. And that resonated with me so fucking much. It was just like, no, I was I was never scared. I almost, you know, oh, now this finna fuck everybody up. Uh, what was what was Michael J. Fox's character in Back to the Future? What he said, I'm scared of rejection. Remember he said that it, like like that. I was never scared of, of being approved. I just didn't want people not to like my shit, so I yeah. worked so hard at it. But I was never scared. That's the one thing I never thought. Like oh, I just, I just some, some Matrix shit, like like there was. I didn't go to school to be a photographer, but I've done great photography. You didn't go to school to be a director. You've been a great director, a great writer. So to me, we were never scared of what people thought we just knew that we tried and gave it that time so to me that's why this film really resonates with me that's a good point it is a perfect movie to show to film schools or film students or pretty or people that are aspiring to be filmmakers because not only do you get a very like introductory introductory level to just the the basic fundamentals of making a good solid film you also get the the content of it is preparing you for the trials and tribulations that you'll experience internally trying to be an artist in an unartistic world. <laughs> that's 100% correct. Like you're going to get not everybody's going to love your shit and then and that's what you have to realize. So to me that's that's one of the things there. One of the other things I want to bring up are we still in talking points where we're um, yeah, I've got to, but before we, before we move on to the next, uh, topic, since this is a, uh, awake service, I wanted to share a few memories that I enjoyed from the film. Yes, I'll, I'll come right along with you. Take me down the road and I'll follow. All right. So the first memory that I really loved having with the living wake, uh, during my time with it was, um, the fact that his disease is vague and grave, that it's almost as grave in its vagueness as it is vague in its graveness. Did I f*** that up? No, it's grave in its graveness. <laughs> and that's greatness. Um, but I love that that's the main plot driver. Something so absurd, something so unrealistic, and something that they make absolutely no attempt to apologize for or explain. It's just, this is what it is. This is the world that we're putting you in. Accept it. Take the ride with us. If you don't accept this from this point on, you're going to have a really hard time with everything else we throw they, at you. They even stick it in the turn when, his, when he's with his brother and his mom and his brother's like, you're not dying. Yeah. As if he know, like, oh, he pulls this shit every week. Like, so they didn't know except to explain it. Yes, yeah, so like, right to the very end, you're wondering, is this another one of his schemes? Is, is he really going to die? Mm -hmm. But then even after the fact, even after it happens, you're still like... Allegedly, spoiler alert. <laughs> you're still in that position of wondering, did this, any of this really happen? Happened, right. Is it all a scheme inside his head that took place before we started watching? Mm -hmm. Um... I also like the relationship between Benu and Mills. It's uh, Mills is the perfect wingman. His devotion to Kay Roth is as confusing as it is admirable. Um, I go back and forth wondering if he is just going along with Benu's schemes because he's too passive to go his own way, or if he really enjoys Benu and their adventures. But there's some Fight Club going on. I'm the guy. Yeah, I f up you. you f like I want to talk. Like I want. Yeah, <laughs> his own little basilicus, if you will. Um, but uh, but I yeah I think. And, and Jesse Eisenberg played it perfectly because he there was no, like, trying to outshine the lead or anything like that. He was just like his character. He was the perfect wing. Jesse Eisenberg was kind of the perfect wingman supporting character to uh, Mike O'Connell in this. But um, 
I do think it's sweet that Kay Roth seems to generally shun relationships, but he has this bond with Mills and even admits to loving him. And the only other human being that he loves is Martha, the, the nanny that he has a questionable relationship with. And Mills and Banu, it's not an average friendship. It's this like partnership where they're codependent on each other. Um, uh, he even refers to Mills as his man, his chauffeur, his biographer. But whatever he is, uh, their chemistry is such an interesting dynamic of the film that really adds to how enjoyable every scene is. Jarvis, the AI for Iron Man, Al Borland, the friend of Tim the Two-Man Taylor, Doctor Strange's cloak, and Smithers to Mr. Burns. There has never been a more loyal subject, even Reef from Game of Thrones, there's never been a more loyal subject to anyone like that's the one. This that's why this movie has to be chronicled in a time capsule. Like most, most, what to quote Iron Man from uh, Avengers Endgame? What is he? What, uh, no, Infinity War. What is what is this your? No, that was Doctor Strange. What is he, your liege? Like is your your man boy or something? Like like I have no idea what he's talking about. Doesn't matter. My Marvel fans do. That's another ten subscribers right there. Bring it on. Bring it on. Bring it on. Um, the monologue slash theory that you brought up earlier makes more sense to me because the more and more I talk to you about it, I see this is now it's like it is it's a different version of a beautiful mind. Like, I mean, everything mm -hmm. is happening inside Banu's head. Now, the more I think about it, I don't know if they meant for it to play out that way. But the beautiful part about it, as we will discuss with Mr. O'Connell later, is that he he had this in his head for quite so long so it's like it's out of your head and you're making a movie about your head and like we talk, told you this is not a standard film you'll yeah. learn about broadway stage play and filmmaking and independent filmmaking all in one film yeah the other thing i really like about uh living wake another fond memory that i have my time with it is uh a complicated protagonist i love a movie or a show that has a they give you someone to root for who is flawed and complicated, like Dr. House uh, is a perfect example that I could think of. Look for like that. Him. I never thought about that. Oh, man. Don't can, we, can we do a side by side? I'm sorry. Can we? Can we? Can we? Can we? There we go. Um, so, yeah, they give you a, a lead that's not just the good guy. You get a sense that Kay Roth wants to be good and seems to have a good heart. But as the story unfolds, you could gather that he's a dis disloyal, scheming, alcoholic with a potential history of mental illness. So you, you have this like lead. They cut off the funding. <laughs> yeah. So you have a lead that you don't really, you know, you don't know if you can fully trust them, but you also really want to. Um, so that that just that makes the movie very interesting to me so, uh, what one thing that i i came across here and i'm gonna uh gonna pull this up one of the things that really uh i know we're still at talking points about the film but one of the things that i want to bring up here is is there were a lot of like put it this way you can tell that that, that to me to me o'connell was to for for my enjoyable purpose is meant for and this is just me speaking here is meant more for broadway or stage play because his delivery this mm -hmm. movie the dialogue in this film is up there with i'm talking about that we i know we normally do top three quotes they should have been top 300 quotes there's no way you have to at least watch this movie seven to ten times to, and it's not like that difficult to understand but i'm as far as far as to catch all the beautiful 
it this is one time where it's not visually it's all it's written so well that it's almost like damn if i'd have just listened to this my my mind would have took me where they were mm -hmm. it's almost and i'm not saying it's to, to be bad but it's almost a disservice to me to visually see it now because though the words brought a story alive it reminded me of like uh when you're watching or not a not it's a christmas story and he was listening to that show to get the secret decoder ring and all yeah. like and you had to use your it brought me back to a time to where you actually had to use your mind you can't just rely on your visual to tell the story yeah, he says it perfectly, and when we talked to him later, that it's like a storybook universe, which mm -hmm. that's it. Yeah, it felt like everybody, um, I don't know why I was going to end that, so I'm just going to move on. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the uh, I, I'm beside myself today, because I just, I, think about who your favorite writer, actor is in the world. Do you have somebody in your head? I can't see my mirror. I, imagine you just... You just talked to them for almost an hour and a half about your favorite movie in the world. That, so, forgive me. I'm not on drugs. I'm just on. I'm just on O'Connell. Um, the last thing that I that I sounds I, like you're on a little. No, a little Robert Cabanu. <laughs> the 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 musical numbers. They were such a pleasant surprise, specifically because they come out of nowhere in like towards the end of the second act and the third act. Uh, all of a sudden, it becomes a musical, and like, how could the movie get any stranger? Let's let's make it a musical out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. I love that, but let's not let's not harp on that because you're trying to steal some of my thunder. That's <laughs> Can I, I, I will just say one note that I had about one dress for death at the end is it was an awesome song. It was a fantastic moment, and. Uh, if if you if I heard that song on the radio and you told me this is Neil Diamond's Dress for Death, I would be like, man, that's that's Neil Diamond sounding good these days. It it, it played like a uh, like a Neil Diamond song for me. Neil Diamond is so awesome. <laughs> I know it's random, right? We're coming to America. Oh yes, yes. So one of my last points, uh, as far as talking points were, is that as far as they. They did a very good job of touching when you when you do a film, people like you got to talk about what's near and dear to your heart. And so for me, with this film, they touched on a lot of things and they did it in a lighthearted way. And I'm, I'm only echoing what you said earlier. Just I'm just diving a little deeper into it is that they were able to discuss uh, people who have gambling problems, drinking problems, mental illness, uh, prostitution issues or scared of death or people who jump on WebMD. And he reminded me of someone who jumped on WebMD one night and it said, if you are coughing and have red skin, you're dying in 19 days. So now all of a sudden you're telling everybody, hey, man, it's. It's been a hell of a ride. We're yeah. going to get out of here. Like, so they address so many things without having you say, that's so PC, or having somebody after them, this group, that group. I'm not even going to name If I name a group, then I'm going to get attacked by the anti-groupers mm -hmm. who don't name groups. But point being is, like, they did a good job with no one being offended. I've only seen certain shows, like we've talked about the show Atlanta, how they, they do a good job of, of discussing stuff without necessarily offending people or and I, I and honestly i miss the time that we're comedian i feel like comedians should be the only artists who get to talk about any and everything because sometimes laughing about stuff no matter how painful makes it just a little bit easier yeah. so with me this is a comedian who is a writer who is a, i mean that he basically brought who he was when we discuss this with him later he's a musician he's a playwright he's he's worked on with with king he, he's not a name dropper he's worked with these people he said i've worked with these people i have these relationships and it's still hard mm -hmm. all that what do you want to be when you grow up 
that what are you going to work towards to be when you grow up because if you're not working towards it it's not going to happen yeah all right guys that concludes talking during the movie uh it's really hard to find stuff about this movie online so we have a short big we have a we have a, a small big fight i mean today. no it's not they can just subscribe here and find everything they need to know about it online everything you need to know will be right here by the end of this episode <laughs> yes promise we promise that, that. <laughs> so let's get into a small Big fights. These are the big fights. All right, here we go. One, All right, two, we three, have, four. We have nine facts for you today. Number nine. Rules are rules. Did you recognize the librarian? If you have seen Hulu's Handmaid's Tale, you may have felt a chill up your spine during the library scene in The Living Wake. That's Ann Dowd, or as you may know her, Aunt Lydia. Aunt Lydia and the librarian have very similar principles when it comes to the rules. The librarian boldly states into the face of Kay Roth, I'm sorry, sir, the rules are rules. Quick segue on that. Funny part, Jesse Eisenberg played in this, and also he played in Zombieland, which came out years later, and they spend the, the entire movie talking about the rules that he must ah, obey. Boom, that's what we do when we do rules, brother. Big fights. Number eight, location, location, location. The luscious landscapes of the living wake were captured in the film's primary location for the production in... You want to try to say that, City? Yes, I do. Timberport. <laughs> well, hold on. We had, we had, sorry, guys, we had technical issues, but you heard it, and it's, it's in Maine. So, yes. yeah. We'll fix it in post! Timberport. <laughs> yes. Timberport. <laughs> Cannabunk port. Uh, number seven. Budget? Budget. <laughs> the estimated budget for The Living Wake was $500,000. Compare that to Avatar, which cost a whopping $425 million. So it just goes to show you can make a great film with what Hollywood would consider a modest budget. Like I'm going to kill someone this Friday. Mm-hmm. Number six. <laughs> In memoriam, Matthew Coles, who plays Mossman, the funeral director, passed away in 2014. Soap opera fans may recognize him from his role on All My Children, which also starred Jill Larson, who plays Kay Roth's mother in The Living Wake. And does a masterful part of it, I may add. I would not like to be her child. Yeah, yeah, she does a good job playing a bitch. David. <laughs> Oh, female dog playing. female dog somebody oh. put lassie up on the f***ing screen what was that what's he again um no i think lassie was a bitch. okay i'm with award worthy number five the living wake picked up the comedic vision award at austin film festival the audience award at woodstock film festival and was the official selections for afi los angeles Marfa Film Festival, Gen Art Chicago Film Festival, and Off Camera Film Festival. It was awarded the Best Picture Film Award at the Big Apple Film Festival, and at the Vale Film Festival, Jesse Eisenberg won the Rising Star Award for his portrayal of Mills, K. Roth's loyal man, chauffeur, and biographer. Very good, and it just goes to show uh, our filmmakers out there, you can win awards, get all those wreaths, because we got those wreaths before. But again, it's all about what you know, who you know, and when you know them. When time, it's no such thing as luck. When time meets opportunity, that's when success happens. Mm -hmm. Number four, everyone's a critic. 
critics and audience members are at odds when it comes to the reception of The Living Wake, with critics giving it an average score of 47%, while audiences generally enjoy the film, giving it a score of 71%, according to Rotten Tomatoes. That comes from most critics or universal critics. They're not just one genre of film. And most audiences who are actually going to take time to respond are actually from that genre. So that's why there's a higher audience versus a higher critic. You know, because mm. critics are watching all movies. If I, I cannot like something, but if I take the time to respond, then that means I'm really into it. So that's where it came from. Number three, Poetry in Motion. The film deals with heavy subjects, abusive parents, substance abuse, death, and an overall existentialist tone. But it handles these subjects with care and grace set against a surreal stage theater-esque universe of literary wit and whimsy. It approaches grave subjects not unlike a parable or a poem. Literary, literal, literarian, longitude, latitude, those are five L rows in a row and he couldn't get one. Literary That's what I'm here end, for. Literary end. The librarian. Number two, quadruple threat. Not only does Michael Connell bring the character of K. Roth Banu to life on the screen, he also penned the words that came out of his mouth, co-writing The Living Wake with frequent collaborator Peter Klein, and produced the film, and as well as wrote and performed a few catchy musical numbers that spontaneously break out in the third act. I like to call that the Tim Curry effect. We, we talked about him earlier. Um, my thing is this, is that... We said there was only one or two ways Tim Curry was able to do that. He was either that damn good or whatever he was taking was that damn good. So mm -hmm. I would like to think that happens. A little bit of way. both, probably. Yeah, 50-50. Yeah, a little half and half, a little Arnold Palmer. Yeah. Yeah. The number one big fight is home turf. Uh, the Bunnington, Maine, where the production took place, is where director Soul Trying grew up. He said that much of the imagery had been burned into his mind for quite a while. Uh, with him, like you say, that's even with speaking of him, that's his directorial debut. And like you say, when you when you've done all these things and like at a certain point, like I liken it to me or you when when when, when you like I say, been from crowd services all the way up to first AD and you've done everything in between. Nobody can't tell you what to do as a director. You may not know be as great as everybody at their job, but you as, as they say, a jack of all trades. And I think mm -hmm. that's what directors are just basically great jacks of all trades. Yeah. And it, and. It also, you know, when you're working on a movie with a with a small budget, you have to, you know, use every advantage that you can, including home turf advantage, where you know people, businesses, you could stay places, get permission to shoot at places that you might be able to save money or even maybe get it at no cost if you have a history there. I mean, how many how many productions have you shot at that I am media lot you're always telling me about? Yeah, Jacksonville is a wonderful place for the, the because it calls home the IM Media, and uh, um, I think you charge like what, like seven hundred and fifty dollars an hour to shoot here. I'm retired. <laughs> See you soon, Hollywood. Um, that concludes Big Fikes. Let's move on to Seven Minutes in Heaven. What so, is our favorite scenes? Somebody's gonna get sleazy. So, kids, quick question. Why spend six minutes in hell when you can spend seven minutes in dirt and take us there? Every scene in this movie is great. Quite literally every scene from the beginning and the end. They play out. What do you disagree? You know what? I, this is my part. So you can disagree quietly. And then, and then <laughs> every scene plays out like its own little like SNL skit or short film each have their own little conclusion but they all contribute to the bigger story i, I love every scene i have a few honorable mentions <coughs> before i get into my top three or i'll start off with my top my top one top 
my number three. So you can go into your number three. Back and forth, back and forth. Um, but let me get the honorable mentions out. So I give honorable mentions to the wake service at the end because it's like a mini stage production in itself. And of course, you get the line where um, where his friends from the bar are so, they believe his performance so much when he falls down that he's like, no, no, Dawn was falling. Dawn fell. She used my body. <laughs> like that part, that just embodied that like, somebody taking their performance so seriously that those they, might have been the only two real people there those two guys <laughs> right. from the bar but they you know he becomes dawn or allows dawn to become right. him that was a great scene uh, another honorable mention the the picnic scene with martha um and the uh another honorable mention to the attack on the road with reginald where they're smelling the, the throwing the smoke rusty nails the ham steaks um but here are my here are my top scenes. I'll, I'll give you my number three first. The the goat stealing scene with the farmer. I'm an eccentric. I keep roast beef in my pocket, and that's that's not a duck among those chickens. That's I like the I like to laugh at it. You try and Jesse the icing on the cake, the cherry on top of the pie is Jesse Eisenberg's laughter at the goat. Well, or at the uh, duck. The, he couldn't even do it. That flew. He was like. <laughs> okay all right i, I agree I, I won't take that from you my number three would be um there is there there is a scene when he's at the graveyard at the end and there's a, as a, a there's a, a, a not a monologue but then he goes into song and the first lines of the song is i've never had a swiss whore and for some reason i don't i was just like he's in a cemetery he's he's about to and die mm -hmm. and the first lines he can come out of is i've never had a swiss whore yeah. and I, I don't i can't tell you what the they talked about in the rest of that song but all i know is he's never had a swiss whore and to me that is movie cinema that's it's that's gold jerry gold thanks banya have you ever had a swiss whore i've had a swiss miss <laughs> i've had those those, those hot chocolates swiss can i get you to sign a, a non-disclosure if you ask me that if you sign a non-disclosure i answer the question i've had a swiss roll cake and no, I wait. The, what, what does that mean? It's not innuendo for anything. It sounds it's like it is innuendo. Chocolate wrapped around white cream. That's and what she I'm said. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> zebra cake. What the fuck are you doing? Uh, All right, on to your number two. My number two is the <laughs> library scene. That scene is as heartbreaking as it is hilarious because that uh, that pretty much sums up the the problem in the whole movie that he's facing. That wanting to feel immortal, wanting to feel like the works that he's done are worth something, that they're appreciated. Um, and the way that he so quickly goes to compromising from my books are going to be in the public library for anybody to read to accepting that bitter fact that, like, you know, the, the highs and lows of, a, of an artist of, oh, they want me, they love me, they hate me, I'm the worst, I'm going to die, no one's going to know who I am. Like, that he went through the, that range of emotions in, like, one scene, and it and eventually ends up, you know, you know no one's going to see my work, but then compromising where uh, Mills, being the perfect wingman that he is, decides, you know, I'll be your audience, I'll care, I'll tell your stories to my children. 
the and then you know he like he's got the blanket he's sitting down he's listening to the story and that line is so beautiful where he says better for one than for none like how many premieres are we are we emotionally preparing ourselves for beforehand like man i just i just you know it was i would love 350 people but it would be great if you know just really just showing it to one person and really the more is truly the merrier but the things we tell ourselves so that we can boldly go into the next project are absolutely amazing and that that scene that library scene summed all that up so eloquently one thing i'll say to that to what you were saying i mean i mean just to add to your point but you have to look at it this way one thing i think we never thought about remember as kids or even just growing up we were conditioned what we went to theaters that were filled we watched people give applauses we heard of these great directors and of course we aspired to be great actors and great directors just like them but one thing we didn't think about was again they had budget they had marketing they had this they had these people didn't just show up because they just heard of this film Mm -hmm. they were conditioned to know this film when we even till now when we when we reach out to people about film it's like you know we still can only get so many unless they've been conditioned to tell be be told that it's good so i think it's just something that as filmmakers you have to be prepared for and like they say just know that there's a way to get over the hump but you still have to work at your craft i I will say that yeah unless you have found a way to tap into the zeitgeist somehow you are going to it's going to be an uphill battle always are you talking about like how many how many big actors and big filmmakers could you name and compare that to how many people are acting and making films? And that's us who love film. Right. There's only a select, I mean, just like he says in the library scene, you haven't made a damn decision in your life if you've been given the options by somebody else. And that is the perfect representation of, I mean, really not just with the, the struggle for creators, but the struggle for anybody living in a, uh, a free world. Choose between this. Here's the vending machine. You have strict nine and riddle and take one. All right. So with that being said <laughs> yeah. there, so I'm going to go. All right. So, so or as always, Sonny says, well, I want politician A that's, that's, that's uh, ramming me in the ass or, or blasting me in the ass. Or I want politician B that's blasting me in the ass. Either bl- way, you're getting ass blasted. At least cut on the lights if you're going to ass blast somebody. That's all. That's what I always say. Uh, my, my second, my second scene here was. My my second my second favorite scene was that, and it, this was um, this is the one we were talking about earlier. Is that um, it all? It almost was my first scene, but I just could not let the other scene go because it just it was one of the scenes that made me literally bust out laughing. I think I shed a tear. Um, and that's going to be my number one. But for my number two, it is the fact that he literally marches to his death. Oh, that, to, wow. that 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 to me, bro, it was just like, damn, I didn't think about Only. it. To, yeah, yeah, boldly marches to his like, I, and it's like he take like his dad when like it, it comes to full it comes full circle. It's kind of like, damn, I'm not scared of anything. Gave and me so chills, I, man. That, I, 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 I watched not it. Even consider that. I'm picturing it now. <laughs> that is. That's yeah. Boldly marches into literally the abyss. Just, just, literally, no questions asked. To, to the moment, turns around, and it, it, the mo- that scene's so epic. And on, the only thing, the cherry on the top, is that the f-ing books are there, like in the f-ing coffin, yeah. like to me. So bury me with my books. Look, so while it should have been my number one, I selfishly chose something else. But to me, like that scene was so powerful, man. Like you're not scared. Listen, I'm not scared. I'm gonna march to it. Damn, I wish I, I almost want to change my number one. Now. Well, just, just put do a voiceover, that. like use my voice in front of your mouth. <laughs> um, I, I, 
My number one is the liquor smith scene because everything about that scene is so great. It's it's short, it's sweet, it's ridiculous. Um, the the wager is so absurd. Why why would the liquor smith accept the? And you're a gambling man, <laughs> so am. you can speak on this, please. K. Roth, you're you are the liquor smith. K. Roth Benew walks in. He the the way the the bet is you have to pick what liquor he has on his mind or you lose your glasses that you need to see. He's literally putting he's putting his tie on the line. You as the liquor smith are going one how the it's so many options for you to choose from. So that I mean I'm not a gambling man but I think that that f- with your odds big time. But then there's uh, he accepts it. He accepts the bet. Even though he can lose his glasses, worst case scenario, or, and the liquor. Oh, wrong again, liquor smith. Like, this happens on a, da- on a daily basis, and the liquor smith has never learned. And then, like, it even, like, illustrates how kind of idiotic the liquor smith is when, oh, and here I am with this fine pair of glasses that serve no purpose for me or something like that. The liquor smith goes, yeah, you just won them in the bet. Like... We were there. You were there. Who are you telling that you want them in the bed? We don't need a memory refresher now. This happened 30 seconds ago. Everything about that scene is so stupid in the most wonderful way. That is, that is, it, it sets you up for the adventure you're about to go on with K. Roth Benu and the characters that he's going to encounter. And it doesn't, it, it only gets, well, I wouldn't say it gets, it's my number one scene, so I can't at the same time say it gets better from there, but it is, stays consistently as funny as that. I'll agree. I'll hit three points very quick and then I'll give you my number one. Number one, I'll agree that it does set, set you on the roller coaster to where you're going on. So you already know that reality has left the train station. Hogwarts is on the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, when you ask um, me being a gambler, um, I'm a strategic wagerist. But with that being said, uh, I will say this. Sometimes when you do, if you call it gambling, as, as you call it, Sometimes when you're a degenerate gambler, look look at me when I say this. You just need a fix and you'll do anything for it. So that's the position that he was in. Shout out to So Trojan. you're saying he K Roth the new like he does a lot of characters where he takes advantage of their weakness. The liquor smith's weakness is is a, he has a uh, a gambling problem and and He'll do anything. K. Roth is exploiting that. He'll, he'll do anything for a fix. He'll, he'll do anything. And so number three is me bringing myself back to my, my number one scene. My number one scene for this film that made me bust out laughing. I'm pretty sure a tear or two came out. It was a, it was, um, it was doing the prostitution scene of the film. And <laughs> when, when, when Mills, <laughs> her, Mills. Hold on, let me let me see Mills while you're explaining this scene. Mills takes some substance. He turns around to this. He he, he, oh, he yeah. taps it out in his hand and he he, he looks back. He like, do you want to see my baby bird? And she was like, yeah. <laughs> It got so dark, so quick. Because the lead up to that scene is that. He Bill Cosby. Right, right. No, no. But the lead up to the scene is 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 Benu saying, 
No, he's chronicling my life. It's actually me paying him not to watch. So if anything, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have fifty dollars on my person. I have not like, like he went through every excuse. She was like, yeah, no, no, no. She wanted to call my pimp. Yeah. Like, see, is it one? Either one or two things happen. Either he was really that disturbed to where his fantasy was. Is that like in his mind? Even in his, when he was having sex with prostitutes, Mim, Mills was still there. That's mm-hmm. how f-ed up he was. Or the other part of that was he was just that eccentric that Mills was there chronicling his life while he was f-ing his prostitute. So to me, I'm sorry, man. That was my I'll number. I, when he when he said, "Do you want to see what?" What made him say, "You want to see my?" He could just turn around like, hey, yeah. he turned around. You want to see my baby bird? <laughs> she was like, he got out just like the." <laughs> Jesus Christ! Like who who drug somebody after sex? Yeah, yeah. That's what the f- was f- with Only me. Mills, the asexual. Jesus Christ, man! So that was my number one. That, those are solid. Those are solid. Thank you, man. I, I mean, you, you can't pick a bad scene. You really movie. can't. You really can't. Um, Jesus Christ! That is a. Uh, that's seven minutes of f- heaven, man. Yes. Let's. Let us move on to Scene Stealers. All right, so Scene Stealers. Every week we pick, he picks his favorite artist, I pick my favorite from the movie. We battle it out or flip a coin to decide who is the winner for that week. They go up on the board. At the end of this uh, first season, uh, after we cover, after covered 13 films, we will take those 13 actors and we will have a battle royale to determine who is the number one actor of season one and gets the coveted TTFT season one best actor award. Um, so far, just a recap, we have, and God damn you for picking this person whose name I will commit to by the end of this season. So but for now, I'll call Okoye. We have Okoye. From, from Black Panther, from episode two, we have Robert Pattinson of Tenet, and who will we have for three, The Living Wake? Well, for me, um, I, I really had to try to really take this with a level head, because clearly you saw this years ago, and in, in all transparency, I only saw this a few days ago, but of course, I definitely did a deep dive into it, as we do to do our due diligence on these films. To did make you sure. do your research? I did homework. Okay, damn you for switching it and, up. And, and down, and that, no, no, because while I was doing my homework, I found out I had to do research. That's what was crazy about it. So as I'm researching my homework to get to my statistics, which were in my notes, which were in my mind the whole time, what I, what I figured out was, to me, like I say, for, for me being, for me wanting to be becoming and, you know, honoring my craft my whole life of, of acting to me this is one of the this is one of the subjects that i take super serious that we talk about i take all of them serious but to me this one hones in more for me as we always call it our i don't like to call it best actor or actress just the best artist because it's fluid and uh you know entertainment is a spectrum but with that being said for me on this one i mean what i looked for was while it was so easy to go in one direction i i I harpened back to what I what I thought about. I saw what you did with Kill and, and what a lot of directors have done with other films. To me, when the when the main character is just so strong that he, no matter where he's at, he's going to take away from everything. Mm-hmm. And not take away, add to. He's just, the, there's no way to not make him the center of everything. But New is so strong. And I wouldn't have wanted to see. Only other person I think could have played it was Conan O'Brien. 
I can see that. Uh, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Or or the guy or his friend. But it would have been like kind of gimmicky almost. Yeah, yeah, it would have been too. But yeah. But but my point is this is that like he did O'Connell did such O'Connell O'Brien, but go figure O'Connell O'Brien, whatever. <laughs> but he did such a good he did not even good. He he did such I, this is the, the highest respect I can praise O'Connell. He did such a uniquely remarkable job, meaning it was it was his fingerprint. Yeah. Meaning no one else could have done what he done did with that role and that couldn't Banu was made for him. But with all with that, not even but I hate saying but such a conjunction and contradiction. To me, I have to go Jesse Eisenberg on this. And the reason why me personally I have to go this because you you're already at, to let someone else shine but still be so particularly awesome in your role, I have to give credit to man because yeah. now don't to, to, because you, he had to normalize everywhere Banu went. Mm-hmm. He, he he had to be that that support. He had to be that cheerleader, that brother, that friend, that 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 bromance. He had to be all those things to everyone when he needed a story read. Hey, hey, I got this blanket. Hey, let me hear it. You can say it again. While he's he, why he why he entertained the guy earlier to so that Banu could steal the goat. Mm-hmm. He he wrote that song for him at the end. He he only interrupted him one time. He run he said, we, 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 I have so much time left. You have to do this now. I don't have so much time. He's like, I have to do it now. And you know who reminds me of? Um, because not necessarily in front of the camera, but with just some, with their idiosyncrasies and things like that is. Edward Norton. It's funny. It's like, hey, you're bringing the words out of my mouth. Yes, Primal Fear, Rounders, Edward Norton, the incredible. I, 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 lost, I lost time. I lost, I lost time. time. Like, yeah, I bet you he did. And that's one of his best performances ever. But no, Eisenberg really delivers. Thank you for that. That's also where I think, uh, rest in peace, Heath Ledger got that scene from in the uh, Dark Knight. But um, but, but seriously, so for, for me, this scene, this film is Jesse Eisenberg, not because he was such a cause, because he wasn't even the A-list actor on set back then. He was just like everybody else trying to get where he wanted to be. Mm-hmm. But he gave so much. And, and he has, and furthermore, the, the deciding factor, the, the sprinkle on top was he had had legs of steel. You drove a rickshaw for, I know it was for months. Like, That's Jesus true. Christ, That's man. Very good point. Yeah. Go ahead, man. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg was my first honorable mention, so I I totally agree with everything that you said. Like that was spot on. How you can be support, be so great, and yet and not and not have it like be at the at the expense of how supporting you are mm-hmm. in your role. And yeah, so he was the and he he was like the perfect balance to K. Roth's eccentricity, the spontaneousness of K. Roth was like grounded by the I don't want to say what you he did what you'd expect but it, it was there was like a safety net with uh with that Mills provided um and sometimes it also felt like he was taking on your perspective as a spectator to everything and and it kind of encouraged you to respond in it with acceptance the way he responded or just kind of like a passive observer to everything um and yeah, I I, could, I can't imagine anybody else bringing that role to life the way he did. Maybe and I, I maybe um, Michael Sarah uh, could could have pulled that off. Um, but I can see that I can see that. Uh, the other um, the other honorable mention I have is Eddie Pepitone as Reginald. Does uh, that you make me nervous? <laughs> Almost like a sling blade little thing going on there. This this rival. It was such like a traditional. Like the the rivalry that they have was hilarious, and there was never really explained. It was just it these guys hate each other. Accept it. He, it, it. 
you mean you get an idea for why Reginald has this despise for uh, Banu, but it's never really confirmed. Um, but my uh, my number one, it has to go to Mike O'Connell because he made this movie for me. His embodiment of K. Roth Banu is magic to watch. His delivery, every line he says, it demands your attention, and you're thankful that you paid it. The fact that Mike O'Connell wrote the lines that K. Roth proclaims gives it this feeling of having a personal, uh, like a personal signature, or like you said, the fingerprint mm -hmm. that that only he could uh, unlock. Um, and you get this sense that it's just a very, I want to say sentimental, but you feel like you're getting a peek into something more than just a character in a film. And um, there's there's a, a certain admiration for being brave enough to step into a role that, like, like when we talked to him later, you find that there's a lot of him in that character. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I think that's why people that love the movie identify with it so much is because of that character. Um, so we're at, we're at a head here because you're, I, I totally agree with you. And I also think that K Roth's character is as great as it is with Mike O'Connell because of Jesse Eisenberg or, or not because not, not solely because of, but like we said, Jesse Eisenberg is almost great. Uh, it's iron sharpening iron is what it is. Yeah. So question, did we go to the coin flip on this one? Are you vetoing me? What are we going here? I think I need to use my one veto this season for this episode. I and shall allow it. Thank you very much for making this I shall easy allow it. and congratulations. Sorry, Jesse, you're going to have to wait to season two unless you're in one of these movies we didn't. <laughs> but great, hey, seriously, honorable mention to Jesse, and there was no, for us, I don't think there was a wrong answer here, but again, like like you said, I cannot, uh, to, to, my, to your point and my point earlier, the dialogue in this film is, to me, top ten dialogue of all time that's been written and performed, like, so I, I'll give that. I'm, I'm, I'm there. Alright. Mother Mike, oh, mother Connell, congratulations. You are on the and I am rooting for you to win the award for the whole entire season. I know I'm going to have to fight really hard for that, but, <laughs> but hey, today you are a winner, sir. Um, what is the next segment? Uh, the next segment is... You're going to need a bigger boat. All right, we are about to break down our favorite lines from the living wake and i'm just gonna i'm just gonna prepare you right now i have at least like one for every scene that i'm gonna machine gun through when it's my turn okay yeah you want to start <laughs> might as well yes me then me then me then you then me then me then me then you me then me then you me corky romano um all right so the opening scene with reginald Ah, that's the stuff, Reggie. Nothing like empty threats from a shallow man first thing in the morning. It really gets my blood going. That, and then, and then the way Reggie responds, you make me nervous. <laughs> like, that, that, and that's the extent of what we know about why Reggie hates K-Roth. And it goes no further than that. That was, um, like, I, like I say in the interview, from that moment in the movie... I knew that, that I, this was going to be a ride. I get why he doesn't. I get why uh, Reggie doesn't like K. Roth now. Why? It just reminds me of something that I'll talk to you about later. It didn't even dawn on me that they they're not really like neighbors in the sense that we would think. <laughs> they live in the same like man like shelter for men. 
Uh, and I, I didn't realize that till like the end of the movie when they when his mom brought up, you know, you're, you're living in that shelter. Um, it's well, another added layer to the complicated character that is K. Roth. Well, if I have to do a segue, since we're since we're talking about his arch villain, it was when he told Reggie at the wait into the wait. I've shit in all your pants. Yeah. No, literally, I've shit in all of them. And so for me, I was just like, well, damn. Like, to think about this, guys. Somebody's pissed you off. And you, I mean, I've never, you, people have thrown shit at people's houses. They, even if you shit on people's cars and their offices, even on the office, they shit in Michael's office. Even if you shit on somebody's car, he said, I shit in all. All, all of your pants. pants. So now, either Reggie has two pair of pants, or uh, Banu went over there several times throughout time, strategically in each pair of Reggie's Levi's. Yeah. So for me, yeah. Um, in that same scene, and all of my lines are K. Roth. What is life if it is not uneasy? That did, like yes. again, all of his lines so it could be uh, proverbs. They they need to be on a coffee table book. If somebody else doesn't do it, I am going to. Damn it. I'll say this: You can tell it was 2007 when they did this because uh, one of the lines is, "Don't put too, don't put don't put too much makeup on me. You're gonna make me look like a queen. A Leave queen. me the rouge or something." <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, uh oh, I was hey, I was afraid hey, for a second. He's a flawed protagonist. He, hey, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. The picnic after, so he gives this long speech to uh, Martha's husband about you know pleading with him to let them have some alone time together and it it's so hilarious before he even puts a question mark on his request the husband just casually no like he doesn't he doesn't even get can to i the respond because you took one of my lines that's well, one of my one, go go you might say it go ahead when k roth concedes well my whole life has been awkward why should it stop now it was before he said that he said something in between because I had the same one. He says, uh, he, he, he like, like her husband's there and he's like, he's telling her, you're my one true initial love. And he was like, and all of a sudden he's like, you think I can have some long time with her? And clearly her, her husband's like, no. And he says something back to him and Kate Ross like, you're poorly made. Yeah. <laughs> that was like, yeah. <laughs> told he was poorly made. He's got some very interesting zingers. <laughs> like you really have to think about it. Like, what the does he mean i need to figure out what he means before i know if i'm insulted um the library scene uh and i brought this up before that is, i mean that scene is full of of awesome advice really mm -hmm. if you if you listen to the dialogue but when he says you don't make a damn decision in this life if the options are always given to you by someone else that is so prophetic um, so that that's on my list. It's almost like sure. he meant that when he didn't even say it with the same gusto at all. It's almost like he meant that. To me, is when is one of the lines we got from Gaffigan. Is one of my Gaffigan lines when he told his son, "If you control all the posters, how can they send you threatening letters?" <laughs> that was so sweet. Yeah, it's yeah. like <laughs> that was very telling. Like if this. All right, now K. Roth Benu makes a little bit more sense to me. Mm. Listen to the, the things the his dad saying. His <laughs> it was power for one day. <laughs> like, like it's almost was. That, I felt like that was a little sign for reference for uh for uh newman's like when you control the mail yeah. you control information <laughs> the the clock shop that i thought it was brilliant or and hilarious again how he says if i'm forced to live within the confines of time the least you could do is give me the hour and the minute we are in free of charge what does he tell him i can sell you some time. <laughs> like let the yeah. out of here like dude what do you I do? can sell you the time 
<laughs> or oh, this way, hopping back to your first your first scene, uh, when you, like you say, it says the roller coaster. He's like, mind if I have a sip? And he was like, oh, oh, yeah. go, go, go. And he pints like he takes like eighty five percent of the drink. So that was Long beautiful to me. For Mills to slowly get out the conversation for the rest of the scene. He's yes. sitting there chugging. The church scene, uh, where the men outside the church say, by the grace of God, we are all alive, to which K. Roth responds, really? Do you think it's God's fault? Like, the implication of that line is hilarious, that our survival is a problem that warrants blame needed to be placed on something. Like, the fact that we are here, alive, surviving, K. Roth sees that as some kind of, like, curse that somebody should be cursed for, like... Like, it's God's fault that I'm alive, not thank God that I'm alive. I can see that. I can see that. I can. Wow. Okay. I didn't even think about it that way. That was, that was, no, that was a good one. That was definitely a good one there. Um, I think this will be the first time where this made a uh, segment it, while we're doing best lines. This is actually not best line. This is actually one of the first times I had to put best sounds. It's in the end when he's doing the Remembering Don speech and he goes f***ing Jurassic Park on me with that T-Rex sound. He's like, like, like some velociraptor shit is happening in there. Arr, yeah. arr, arr, arr. Like some weird shit going on. That's. I guess I'm not getting in Jurassic Park Dominion. I was just trying my voice over. I, I can do voices, just not sound. Arr, arr. Um, this. Uh, I guess this credit would go to either Peter Klein or uh, Mike O'Connell. This is this line is from one of the title cards, which I just thought it was so genius. It said, uh, "Family." The only institution that made me insane. I I I saw that card. No no. Sh I saw that card and I was like, that, I didn't think it was gonna be one of your favorite lines, but I'm like, Dave is gonna love that. And I mean, you had already saw it, but I I knew you'd love that. Uh, one of the one of the last ones I had was when he's like, uh, I got fifty dollars taped to my testicles. First off, I want to know why the fifty dollars were taped to his testicles, as if he had been in that situation to where he knew he had let people watch before with a prostitute. And then we get a subtle hint that they 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 fulfill something without saying it. If you see at the end of the film, the the pimp is the one that takes the like she has a female pimp, and she's the one that takes the fifty dollars. All you hear is just I was like, there it is. Yeah, that's a long punchline. But I was worth it. Worth it though. It was. My my last quote is uh, is also from the the wake service, uh, where he's in the middle of that song, uh, "Dressed for Death," and he he confronts his mother and and she says something like, "Stop being ridiculous!" or "This is ridiculous!" and he says, "You think that's ridiculous, mother? Wait till you see the finale." <laughs> like that was. He does it, say, and then he marches. It's it. again that fearlessness of this is who I am. I'm doubling down. Damn it all! Here right. it goes. And by the way, your your other son's an alcoholic. He saw that in his character. <laughs> you have any other quotes? Uh, let me see if I didn't miss one. Uh, I'm going to make sure. Uh, what what? Yes, yeah, so the last one I have here is the one that we talked about before. Again, this is what really entrenched this film for me when he was saying when he told him he when they were in the uh, in the funeral home and he told him he wanted a Viking ceremony because to me that was just like to me it's it's almost. It's, it's just like, that's so badass. It's something that an eccentric artist would want. You can't bury me. He's like, other than your cremation, I was, he went in there like it was fucking Dairy Queen of 32 flavors. He yeah. wanted to know how many ways could you fucking put me in the ground or burn me and send me up to heaven or wherever he was going. It was just, it was crazy, man. Yeah. And to me, that also, uh, to speak on it real quick, if you notice, like, to me, I don't think it was not done on purpose. Like the the most serious part of the film is the last shot to where they do that slow crawl, crawl back with Jesse mm -hmm. Eisenberg sending them out for the Viking funeral. It's like, okay, this isn't funny. Like 
Mm-hmm. Like maybe he did die and somebody found his funeral and I mean found his journal and then this is what became of it. You know what I'm saying? Like they yeah. attribute to Banu. Yeah, that's and, what and, it and seems like. They, yeah, it's so nice and open because even if you know his, if you like, if you're really paying attention to his character, you could really believe it's either way. Either Jesse Eisenberg or Mills has really taken his body and burned it, or you know, I feel like there was intentionally that moment missing between you know Mills taking. Mills burning his body, like you don't see all of that lin- in a linear way. Right. There could easily be a part missing where Mills was in on it, or or like that he's not really being burned at the end. Right. Or if it, or if it's just a representation for something else. It's 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 a nice somber closing that leaves it just open ended enough for if you want closure, you can accept it at face value. If you want to dig a little bit deeper into the metaphor of it, it gives you the opportunity to do that as well. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's move on to cast, crew, or you. All right, let me stop him right there, guys. I got to do this because he's going to mess it up. He's super excited. Guys, you know who we have today? Let me tell you who we have today. Mike f***ing O'Connell. Do you know who Mike f***ing O'Connell is? He's the guy that made this guy make films that you love, that I'm in, that I do my thing in. So that's why we got to thank Mike and O'Connor for showing up today. So guess what? He's here. Go ahead. Shut up. (laughs) I have been... uh, This is is one of the main reasons why I wanted to do a show like this was specifically for the guests of this episode. uh, Mike O'Connell is a hero of mine. Like like I made it abundantly clear by now, he made my favorite film in the history of film. So to be able to do this today... You know what? Okay, let's just get into it. I want to be your hero, baby. <laughs> All right, so our uh, guest today, actor, writer, musician, and general funny human being, the one and only Mike O'Connell. Nope, not the wheelchair comedian. Not the hockey player. That one and only Mike O'Connell. Um, so I uh, just want to preface this real quick by saying that usually I like to try to remain an objective observer when we're doing this show and we're covering films. Um, I'm just going to let you guys know right off the top here that I'm going to fail miserably at that today. Um, I, am, I have so much respect for the uh, work that Mike O'Connell has done. Uh, the Living Wake is, of course, my favorite film of all time. And um, I couldn't think of a higher moment for this show unless Bill Murray answers my message on his uh, answer <laughs> machine. But so I'm just I'm very excited today. I'll try my best to keep myself contained and composed so we can get through this interview um, successfully. Uh, O'Connell has worked on such films and projects as The Black Dahlia, Funny People, Patriot, which you can catch on Amazon. He's written for uh, the show Dr. Ken, has done a whole bunch of work with Funny or Die. Your kids might even know him from a little show called Word Girl, and of course he wrote and played the lead in K. Roth Banu in the whimsically witty dark comedy that we are discussing in this episode, The Living Wake. And how are you doing today, Mr. O'Connell? All is well. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So, when I when I watch *To Live and Wake*, I don't know if if this is a testament to your acting or if it's because this film was written by the same gentleman that that you you know and, and you play the lead as well. But I got a sense that there was an autobiographical aspect to this film. 
maybe not the actual events, but the general idea for who K. Roth Banu is. Um, so how much of K. Roth Banu is Mike O'Connell? I think a lot of the fanciful nature is in me of the man. But uh, I think a lot of that, it was autobiographical to a point. I think there is just like certain characters from my life, but not specific, <laughs> different energies, you know, like different things you run up against and different, uh, different hurdles you have in life. Kind of like those were the representations of uh, many of the characters standing in his way. I kind of gather that too, that the characters that Kay Roth comes across were kind of manifestations of things he, or people that you may have been dealing with or yeah. you know, generalized like, versions. Like the mom and uh, the mom and the brother. Uh, I do have a mom and a brother, <laughs> but uh, they're, they're very supportive. I think there was, that was kind of about like some that there's people are so nervous for you to go do something kind of crazy. And even if you're have, if you have the most supportive family, there's like when I said, I'm going to go do stand up comedy, like after college, they're like, it was supportive concern. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you're like, yeah. well, you're, you're, you're just, you're running into a fire that is hot, sir. And uh, I don't think you know the challenge of what you, you know, so you're kind of saying, yeah, there has to be both of those sides where somebody's like, you know, you have to be, there is an easier way. <laughs> it's kind of what the mom is saying and you are not taking it. And it really is breaking my heart. <laughs> Quick question. Did you, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm coming around, coming around, coming down with a little, uh, what is, what do we call that? I don't know, but you're not six feet away from me, so keep it. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm coming down with a little K-Roth Banu. Oh, I, oh there you see what I did there? Boom, hey, there you go. I need a little, oh, see there. So, yeah, Mike, thanks for joining us. I want uh, kind of to uh, segue from his question here. I want to know. When you wrote this, and clearly you're a writer at heart, and from what we've seen, we've done our research here, and from what we've looked at here, did you write this character specifically for you to play it, or did you want some of your, your experiences to be there and maybe someone else do it, or you, did you feel that no one else could pull um, this off? It started off as something I was going to do, like, as a one-man show type of situation, so it was always something I was writing for myself, and then, uh, and as we got closer to making it, nobody kicked me out. <laughs> so I think somebody, I remember somebody was, it's like, you know, once you get closer to making a movie, people are like, this person will get your movie made. Do you know what I mean? Put this person in and this will help you greatly. So I'm sure if somebody at some point was like, you know what, maybe losing Mike would be smart. I don't know. <laughs> get Vigo Mortensen to play the part <laughs> or something great. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that was not an option, but it was, uh, it was initially, initially I was going to do it as kind of a stage play about a guy who had this, basically the K-Roth character was in his mind and he thought he was this great artist, but he was just like a postal worker and he had a very kind of sad life, but lived a, a wonderful dream life uh, well, in his mind. I, I would say it definitely I think we got to play off of the uh, the stage play even at the end when you're doing the one man show at the end when you're the one like yeah, that, yeah. So that was that was the uh, <laughs> that it was supposed to be the whole short uh, version of the stage thing would be it's this guy kind of dying in a fever dream and kind of trying to claim he had achieved great things 
but maybe he hadn't, or <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> he was never scared. He was never scared. Yeah, he was never scared. <laughs> never. Uh, he tried his best, I think. I'm wondering, what was the what was your inspiration for that story? I know you said it was initially going to be the stage production, um, but just the idea of K. Roth, the, you know, that manifestation of uh, an artist trying to immortalize himself with his work. Um, yeah. Where, where did that come from? Um, I think that there was like a reflection on you just like going to moving to LA to do stand up and stuff like that and being like, uh, not that I was frustrated where I was or being like, I'm being ignored or anything, but it was, uh, it just made me reflect a lot on what is, what do you do these thing, things for and what do you, uh, why am I doing these things? It's like reflecting on what the uh, background purpose of it is and sometimes it seems like there's very shallow reason <laughs> sometimes there's a very deep reason for what you choose to do but uh, i was just thinking of somebody who might not be the best at everything he tries to do but he does it so hard that it's kind of beautiful and he, and he faces all kinds of people who want him to stop <laughs> and uh, and he just won't because it's like not in his capacity to stop, you know. Mm -hmm. Can you take us? Can you take us behind the curtain a little bit? When you talk about the actual writing process, now when you sat down to initially do this, did you have the whole idea in your head? Did you kind of piece it together and just start? And one fo and a follow up to that: um, How long did you work on the script for? And this is our Quentin Tarantino question of the day: Were there any performance enhancing writing drugs involved in this process? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Well, I wrote the. I wrote the. the one person show or whatever uh and it was like a 25 page thing and that i don't know what year it was but uh i gave it to my friend peter klein who's the right co-writer on it and so we just kind of were starting he had been writing a screenplay with somebody else and helping them he'd helped a bunch of people write screenplays and we grew up together best friends uh forever forever and forever and so he uh <laughs> he basically helped flush it out into a film form. And I think it was, you know, originally it was about, because we were just thinking about doing it as quickly and as cheaply as possible. And I think it, it was just a, it was just a really eccentric guy in LA first, because it was just like, there are actually, you, if you live in LA, you see these people that are, are kind of like K Roths in a way where you're like, there's just like this insane kind of, it would have been beautiful here as well, I think, especially uh, the palm trees and the rickshaw would have been a nice thing to see. <laughs> and then once we actually got serious about it, we had to figure out where to put it and how, what made sense. Where did, was that in the script or is that like something that you came upon in production and thought, yeah, let's run with that? Like, where, did you see the uh, rickshaw or something? Because that's one of the things that like really solidifies the absurdity of the movie is Jesse Eisenberg riding you around on a rickshaw for from a scene, yeah. from a scene. um i think it was just like i read you know just the don quixote uh kind of relationship of um yeah it's like how, how do you uh make sancho panza and don quixote like how do you make that a different thing like instead of the horses and it just it also it was like this weird the ego of the character the rickshaw is kind of perfect versus to have some guy. He's like, I have one fan and I make him drive me the f around. 
And so you're like, what? If, if you have one fan, you should be nicer to your fan. <laughs> and uh, so I, I read that it's screened in uh, festivals where it receives plenty of awards across the board. And, um, and, and it, it went through the circuit for about three years from the time it was completed in 2007 to it being released to the public in 2010. Um, can you take us along that timeline of getting this film made from, the, from you know, having the final draft, uh, getting the yeah. crew together to, to it, it being available yeah. finally? So, yeah, it was four years, uh, 2000 to 2004, we're writing the script. We have an idea to make the short film version just to create the world of what this could be. And I think it was at that point we met Sol, who was from Kenny Bunkport, Maine, and we uh, go and make this short, which I think is part of the DVD. If some, if you buy the DVD, some from whoever f sells it, I don't know. How. <laughs> Amazon, uh, you can get it on Amazon. We made like a ten-minute short um, that might be online as well, but it was like the first incarnation, and it was about me moving into this boarding house and like the boarding house that he lives in in the thing so it's just this kind of thing about him meeting how he met mills mm -hmm. so we did that and then we through that we kind of got funding and just got it closer to being made and then soul was like yeah we can do this in may and, and kenny bonkboard for uh very low amount of money because i know everybody and everybody's kind of like still has this communal feeling where they just like love to help out. And it was just mm -hmm. uh, really, that was inspiring to see, you know, we got so many locations for little to nothing and people were just really supportive of a, of a movie being made there. So, so uh, we made it, it took forever to edit. And uh, I guess two, we, premiered in 2007, I think, at Cinevegas. So yeah, do it took a year to do the music and uh, to, to finish the editing. I mean, it went from two hours, we cut so much stuff, and it was just kind of just super hard, you know, but it's such a specific movie, the longer it gets, kind of, it would wear. <laughs> I mean, there was a two hour version and it was like wearing people down. <laughs> uh, so it was, you know, what do you take out? How do you take it out? And then doing the score, which was so fun to do, but it was, it was the challenge. And, uh, and then we premiere, we got these, I don't remember their names, but they're so I can say they're dodgy. <laughs> we got these like reps, you know, like at the, at the Cine Vegas Film Festival. And people are trying to sell it. People are like, no, we should get an endorsement from somebody who's famous because Mike and Ken have this video right now. Maybe we can get Will Ferrell to get, I mean, it really got into these things where people, we were holding it because we were waiting on a better situation to release it in. But that slowly faded as time passed. And so it didn't come out till 2010 because of that. It's like actually just a regular, it's like everybody's like, that sucks. And you're like, no, that's just a normal movie schedule. <laughs> yeah. It's that stupid and weird that it's like, you can't, 
it's not you're not able to just cut two years out of the process for if you because you don't like it so through the entire process from the point that you have the idea in your head uh filming it uh seeing the final result i know with independent filming with uh production limitate or bu budget limitations things like that sometimes compromises can be made along the way um, sometimes they result in a, a better than what you imagine. Sometimes you you, yeah. know, you wish that it could have went the other way. But could you, like, how how close does the um, does the final product resemble what was in your head when you started writing? I mean, you're, I think you, we just overwrote the f out of it, and it's like a very talky movie already. And then we had so many scenes we had to cut. There was like a whole introduction at the boarding house, which was like this beautiful just a beautiful place like this old time that old time mansion that it, that's the movie starts in but i would go into these other rooms and talk to the people that would be at the wake later on inviting them and so we had to cut like that where there were some really funny performances this guy that played the landlord was just so funny and he just hated k-roth banu because he's such a menace and uh he <laughs> so he yells at him right before he goes and see him and then at the end there was he's at the living wake and he there's a callback <laughs> which i think was like criminal to cut out i actually probably yelled at somebody because i was like if you if you cut this joke you're just killing the whole movie <laughs> something that extreme but at the end because he's so rude to k-roth and then after k-roth passes away spoiler alert uh he he comes up to this he comes up to the uh to the casket and he goes, I'm sorry, K-Roth, you know what? I'm thinking of going back to school and becoming a dental assistant. <laughs> and then he just walks away. And I thought it would just have been so funny because you see this guy so mad at the beginning, so cruel, and he's just decides to change his life and become a dental assistant. And I was like, how could you not put that in the movie? Yeah, it fits perfectly. <laughs> I showed the movie to my dad before we had finished and that was in it. And then the next version, it was cut out. He's like, where's the f***ing dental assistant line? Like, <laughs> That's funny. It's a similar sense of humor. So yeah, no, that you had to cut so much. And, but there's, you know, I think if you make something so specific that there's not a lot of cutting around the energy of the thing, <laughs> you're just cutting things out, but everything, Everything was in the same weird spirit, so in the end, I feel like we're all very happy with how it came out. Very cool. All right, quick question. I wanted to segue. We were talking. You were talking about the budget before. We uh, digging into the film. We were able to figure out the budget was about five hundred thousand, and well, at least according to IMDb, we can always trust them, right? And with that being said, uh, definitely still impressive according to Hollywood standards. Let me ask you this: Can you tell us the pro? Uh, you spoke to it earlier. The process of getting a a film like this done on that budget, we're still having people flying in, going back and forth. Your head's getting cut off, running around like chickens. What was the process trying to get this thing done? It was long and it was not a well-paid job. <laughs> we just, uh, I mean, we took a lot, we sacrificed a lot on our end, like uh, Soul, Peter, uh, Amy, Chad, and you know, we, it became our lives for quite a bit of time. And also we, I mean, everybody kind of just used all of the people they knew and, you know, people who have, friends of friends who just read the script and we had the package and 
we had like the short film and all of this stuff, all of my stand up and like all, you know, who I've worked with and all this stuff trying to sell it. And people, you know, just got it together. And it just went so quickly because it's so unpredictable. And I think we just got this weird momentum. And then everyone's like, this won't, this is not gonna not happen. This is not going to not happen. <laughs> so if you, uh, I think if like five or 10 people think something's not going to not happen, that powers through a lot of uh, missing money. And you know, like if you're low on money, somebody goes and figures it out. You become so weirdly creative and <laughs> when, you're, when you just really need to make this happen. And at a certain point, it's too difficult to stop the train. So you have to figure out these kind of harebrained schemes to figure, you know, to, to get done. So this was your, this was your first time, uh, at least again, according to IMDb, producing and writing a feature. And um, it was also Soul Trine's directorial debut. Was there, yeah. how did that collaboration come to be? And, and was there ever a point where you um, considered directing it as well? Paul's that. Just wanted to pause the interview real quickly because I actually reached out to director Soul Tryon uh, to be a part of this episode. It's totally on me that he's not here. I, I gave him like 24 hours notice because I was so stoked to get Mike O'Connell for the episode. I didn't think until like the day before that it would be cool to maybe have the director on as well. So there was, you know, because of that short notice, there was a little bit of a conflict. He's in pre-production right now, but I gave Soul the... Uh, same question that I that I gave Mike as far as what it was like collaborating and Sol did send in this uh, response to that question. I'll go ahead and just read it here. Um, so he says, uh, working with Mike was a fantastic adventure. He's such a creative force of nature that it always provides an ample source of energy for anyone he collaborates with. My goal with him was to harness that energy and talent in a way that could create true and honest emotional connections with the other actors in the audience. I wanted to create a setting that housed this outrageous character of K. Roth Banu and provided a beauty that mirrored his inner perspective on the world. I'd like to think that we had a very fluid collaboration with a lot of freedom to explore what we collectively felt was the best solution for any given situation. Mike, Peter Klein, and myself just fully dove into the process and embraced everything that came our way. We always knew we were making something that was incredibly unique and our collective talents and abilities were going to be completely necessary in order to make it successful. I can honestly say that it was the most enjoyable and personally rewarding creative experience I have had. So there you go. Thank you very much, Sol, for, uh, for getting back to me on that. Um, sorry we couldn't have you on this episode and that the, the schedule didn't work out. I hope we can have you on for something in the future. Uh, let's get back to the interview. How did that collaboration come to be? And, and was there ever a point where you um, considered directing it as well? Or is that something that you ever wanted? I think that I was already doing so much. And I don't, I just was not, that was never really an ambition of mine is to do, uh, I don't, you know, like to control uh, the entire thing. I would actually, we just wanted somebody proficient and professional and Soul had just worked. He had produced so uh, many things before this, and he just knew the independent film world better than we ever did. Peter and I, 
I think Peter was working, writing something with another director and I mean, I was just kind of a drunk stand-up, so I <laughs> would be like, if we, it would be a hard sell for us to figure that out. And so uh, it was this nice combination of various skills. What was that collaboration like? Is I know on like, you know, a lot of sets, it's different from set to set where, you know, how clear cut those lines and roles are. And I know that uh, I watched an interview with you on, I think it was Access Entertainment or something like that, where um, you said that, you know, you met uh, Soul in the, you know, making the movie, but there was so much leading up to making the movie, you guys were pretty much solid friends, but by the time you were shooting. So you're on set and of course you, you wrote these lines and you're playing the lead. But, you know, he's he's tasked with getting the blocking, finding the shot. And I saw that he said that there was some imp imp you know, a little bit of improvisation within the production, more so in just the blocking and how things would play out, not so much the lines. But how did that how did that collaboration go between you guys as far as putting the film together, like from day to day? It was great. I mean, we and Peter, uh, he was very important in just like the look and the feel and just us having written it and being like so intimate with what we'd written for so long. I mean, we knew it backwards and forwards. So I think when you have to make those changes, it was so good that Soul was understanding that we were, we were, it was not like we were equal players in the, he had so much to do and he was so proficient at the technical stuff that we, have no clue about and so i think we all had our very kind of specific weird jobs that were fit together like a puzzle you know and even following up on what david said about it as far as there being some improvisation with the of course the blocking and things of that nature when it came to the script i know me and him always joke about you know you have uh whose line is it anyway and he, but uh, but on always sunny in philadelphia they always there's no there's no improvisation you think they there is so with with the i'm gonna tell you i was super impressed with the dialogue in this film i'm talking about it made me feel like i was watching clue barney stinson everybody wrapped into one so first off hats off to you for that thank but, you very much thank you no problem. Was there any improvisa uh, impro improvisation when it came to the, now he has me doing it, when it came to the actual script? Did you guys stick straight to it? There was very little. I think that we were so open to the the way they were saying the lines, you know, but I think that I think that when something's so you know, it's so off the off the norm of dialogue it's more like play dialogue and i think that a lot of the actors just were like this is the world you know like this is obviously not 20 20 2005 so i think that that helped because people just knew that it was a fantasy world and they didn't they did it wasn't like i'm gonna come in here and make them laugh <laughs> i've seen i've seen people i've been on sets where you know People are just improvising so much, and then you look at the uh, director or the producer, and you're like, ah. <laughs> but uh, it can be, you know, especially I think that once you're, you're if you're improvising in a in a completely fabricated world, it's like, how could you do that when you don't understand the the right. philosophies of this place? <laughs> yeah. So I think most people were very, very. They just, they just said the lines brilliantly we were like and it was just like it was really uh, lovely to see <laughs> there was a funny improv it wasn't improv in the scene but 
when we were filming the mother uh, brother scene at this really fancy, beautiful house, I was outside uh, waiting for the scene to go, just looking at my lines and stuff. And the guy who played my brother, he he comes out and he was this really kind of intense dude. And you know, super uh, New York actor, just very kind of an intense dude, but lovely and very funny and ridiculous. And so he comes out and he goes, hey Mike, I've decided the brother drinks. And he pulls out a flask and he just takes a sip. And I was like, oh my God, the guy's drinking. He knows I'm like the producer of the movie. It's so interesting that the guy, he, he was such an acty act, acty actorson actor that he's like, uh, I've done some backstory on my yes, yes. character and he's an alcoholic who drinks all day. <laughs> that's awesome. And then I mean, how do you that, that's kind of a rude story to tell, but it's maybe, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I was like, I'm not, I'm not gonna fire the guy, but it was bold as <laughs> yeah. I decided I'd like, drink. And how do you really I respond to that? Because you don't want to squelch I, somebody's such, you know, oh, commitment to character. And there's no way the guy's not doing the scene. I mean, you know what I mean? If we if we yeah, change yeah. something, it would cost money. And it was just not, you know, like I, the guy could have had a needle in his arm <laughs> on the scene. <laughs> it just made me laugh what, what people kind of say, what people do and blame it on acting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Anyway, those guys so, just didn't anyway. really get me, man. They didn't get where I was. I'm a method actor, damn it. <laughs> That's exactly what he was. And I was like, all right, well. And then he kind of he nailed the scene. I go, I guess the brother is a drunk. <laughs> I guess he does drink. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, the uh, the relationship between K. Roth and Mills is easily one of the most interesting aspects of the movie. The di the dynamic between the two of them, the kind of pick up on like a codependency um, that is so interesting to watch, and and like Mills almost he serves what normally would be like the straight man for the crazy eccentric character, but even you, at times you're like, is he a reliable straight man because? He seems like he is right, you know, he's almost encouraging it subtly um, by, yeah. by, through support <laughs> yeah, um, and, and kind of enjoying it in his own weird way. Um, but so did, did you have Jesse in mind for that role when you wrote that? No, we didn't. Uh, I mean, we had known Jesse from Roger Dodger, not but you just from seeing it and we had never even thought of it. And we didn't know who Mills would be. Uh, I think the funniest person we asked was uh, Pee Wee Herman, Paul, uh, <laughs> which would have been ridiculous. The Rubes? You got the Rubes coming that, out? And that was, I was, that's when I was like, uh, you know, just have him play k -Roth. Jesus, that would be f***ing amazing. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think there were a couple other, uh, maybe, which, you know, trying to get in touch with like Paul Dano and like people like that. And the casting director, I think she cast Jesse and Roger Dodger, so... She knew him and sent him the script and he read it and he was like, I want it, I want in. The chemistry between you guys felt so natural. Was that something that was like cultivated or was it, you know, was it instant? We, uh, we met in New York, like maybe a month before, two months before. I mean, we, I think we got pushed a month. So. We had to live in the backyard in like a tent for 
like it was four weeks. It was so weird. Anyway, uh, we met somewhere in New York and had some drinks and stuff and we just laughed and he's such a smart, funny guy who has such a unique sense of humor himself. And I think he responded to the writing and uh, once we met, it was like, this would be perfect because he, he has this, he's super understated and I think he's just like so knowledgeable of kind of, I don't know, it's like he was a vaudeville guy or something in the, in the movie, you know? And it's like the way even his physical, his physicality is, I'm just always impressed with his acting, but then when, <laughs> once you start acting with him, you're like, I gotta be a better actor. <laughs> Let me ask you this: Being knowing how, where this started from the beginning and then seeing it play out on screen, what was your favorite scene, either to film or just to just watch as a fan of the film? I I like uh, I really liked personally. I liked seeing I've never the musical number because I was like, we did a musical number and I love it. I mean, there's a couple, you know, obviously there's a couple things, but that one to me especially was like to make kind of the one time he's reflective be a song uh, was I thought was a coup. <laughs> and we got this graveyard for free, like right by that side. <laughs> You're like, what the f is this? It's like coming together. We had a steady cam guy who like broke his back and following me around. Cause I kept up the mouth, the mouthing. <laughs> and uh, it was, that was great. And then Oh, you know what it's like, and she, I mean, she, she's uh, in Handmaid's Tale. She plays the librarian, like for some oh reason. Yeah. And uh, for, that's for that, for some reason that scene, she was so good that she actually made me feel bad when I was supposed to be trying to make her feel bad. And I'm like, oh my God, when you work with, uh, she just communicated exactly what, you know what I mean? It's like she, it's like she dug into, our minds and got the meaning of the thing. Oh, and then um, I think that watching it, I love Jack's pants, the Jesse reading Jack's pants, because I think that that, is, that made me laugh so hard. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the way Jesse, and talk about, a, talk about a good performance is where he, like, he really, could, he really could be, I mean, he just is like a, so innocent, such a child, I just love it. Yeah. And that's, a, that's just another moment that speaks to his loyalty to K-Roth, that he sees the despair that K-Roth is in in that moment. It's like, I will, Tell I will story, step in. As, I, will, I, will, uh, I will amuse you by letting you perform. <laughs> I got so, my blanket. The blanket came in like two seconds. He pulled it out of nowhere. Like, I got a blanket. I'm like, why are you carrying around a blanket for stories? <laughs> And then the way that the, uh, the the person, you know, the board for the library just so happens to show up in time to deny it. Yeah, I mean, that was, we were like, oh, okay, this is getting so British. Like, <laughs> this is getting so Monty Python. But that's another thing that, like, Jesse just totally understood was, like, uh, that's another scene that I love him in uh, is the picnic with the old man when he's playing the waiter. I just think that that, in his monologue, like, you know, all the and I do stand up and I've been in movies that are, you know, doing a modern comedy, as you said, like a lot of those performances could go off the rails and just be really kind of trying to be funny. But there is this element of Jesse's like, 
I'm not trying to be funny. It's like, I'm, yeah. this is a serious endeavor we're involved in. <laughs> yeah. And when he does his monologue, I'm like, I just cried. I was like, dude, that is the best that could be done by anybody, so. Let me ask you this, with with all the stuff you've done between the writing and, of course, you've made an impressive uh, contribu contributions when it comes to acting, writing, and producing, all the projects that you've done, let me ask you this. Out of the things that you worked on that brought people, of course, to the living wake, of course, you can find it again on Amazon if you guys need to find it or whatnot. With all the great comedians, writers, and artists that you've worked with, can you think of your favorite, and I know we're putting you on the spot, but can you think of your favorite memory from any project that you've worked on that just stands out above the rest? I did uh, What's It Gonna Be, which is that song that was on YouTube and that got popular and we, I started writing a movie about that and uh, we were gonna make this movie. Didn't work out, but whatever. But because of that, I got to do this Judd Apatow, uh, a bunch of shows with Judd Apatow and all the people that were gonna be doing funny people. So one night at the UCB in Hollywood, California, <laughs> I was going up with Ken and Adam Sandler was there and Adam Sandler growing up to me was like just there was no better than him to me because I do music comedy and stuff like that so he just was my hero and uh just doing this absurd overly sexual video led me to meet this guy and I got to tell him how much he meant to me and it was very uh beautiful moment for me so I think that that's something like that where you're like how did that lead to that and you know uh and again meeting Steve Conrad from Patriot the director writer of Patriot he saw The Living Wake and he was the he was a judge in the Chicago Film Festival and The Living Wake got in and he said he was watching all these movies and kind of tuning out and then he heard the living wake and he heard me rambling about something and he's like what the f is that and he went and watched it and he kept watching it and he's like well obviously this is gonna win because there's never been anything this good and <laughs> he loved it so much and uh so through that and then he the, be the best part of the story is he goes into the meeting the next day to and everybody's supposed to be breaking down which one's gonna win and Steve's like, well, obviously everyone's gonna say the living wake. <laughs> and nobody said the living wake <laughs> except for him. And uh, we did not win. Uh, but what, I mean, what do you win? You you won if you got to f make it. And uh, so after that, I got to meet Steve and we became great friends. And then I started working on his projects and still work on them. So it's, it was just like, it's a friend, uh, a good friend that, enjoys that movie because I think they understand that kind of my eccentricity and <laughs> can and as you said the fans are a very unique group of people that are like they have like beautiful ways of thinking and I think that that is always it's always a plus if you understand living way to me yeah there are certain films out there where it they have the power to tell you something about somebody just by the fact that they like it or not and living wake is yeah, definitely is, uh... one of them and i noticed you, you mentioned that you do music as well that i wanted to do a quick sidebar before we before we finish this thing up um can you tell us about the uh sad songs to get sad to album and and what the inspiration for that was 
I don't know. I growing up, I was so addicted to like love songs and sad songs, and I just would walk around with my yellow uh, uh, Sony Walkman and just walk around the block crying for no reason <laughs> to like a Rolling Stone songs and so. I always loved a sad song, and uh, I just started compiling them uh, after heartbreaks and whatnot. And uh, I just wanted to make a whole album of them, and it was uh, such a great experience. Uh, I know you wrote and uh, composed the songs for and performed the songs for Live and Wake, and uh, I mean, Dress for Death is such an awesome. I can't think of a better climax to a movie than like it. It's up there with like Dirty Dancing when she jumps off the stage and he catches it. Uh, yeah, no, that was a, we didn't have the song until uh, about a month before we started, uh, started shooting. And there was just supposed to be, which was like, man, I was glad I came up with that song. And uh, that, I think Peter came up with the title and then I had come up with a, just the, the music and it really added a an element that we were just so happy to see. It was so hard to edit because the band was actually there. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't playing to a fucking click track and they weren't playing to, it was just like literally an editor's nightmare. And then I had to sing to this track that was not, you know, it was like, it was just, uh, we did it exactly the wrong way, but it, it ended up great. <laughs> oh, yeah, it came together. I would, I would have many, many, many different ways I would do it after that. Uh, let me ask you this. Of course, then this is like we're wrapping this up. Of course, we're going to let people know where they can find a living wake is still on Amazon. Of course, I've, I've already purchased it. So it's in my digital collection now. So I definitely do have that. Um, other than that, where can people find you nine days? What are you working on? And, and like I say, if they need to get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to do that? I've just been doing more. I produced uh, Ken Jung, who's like a good friend and, I've worked with over the years. He's, I actually produced part of uh, his game show on Fox. <laughs> I can see your voice. Uh, eight o'clock, nine o'clock central on Fox on Wednesdays. And uh, I've just been working with friends on different things and nothing really to report. But uh, yeah, check out Sad Songs to Get Sad too. It's on uh, all of the music platforms. Yo, Mike, I could talk to you all day about the living wake, and I won't do that, though, for the sake of my having to get this edited before Thursday, and I'm sure you have things you've got to well, get to. Um, but this has yeah, been... Yeah, it was fun to talk about. Thank you. Well, however you felt when you met Adam Sandler, that's me, that's me now. Oh, um, well, I really, I really appreciate it. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. going hard. If you cannot see it, it's nipple, nipple is coming out of the shirt. <laughs> so thank I'm super you happy. Yeah. Super happy uh, to talk about it. So thank you. Thank you very much. And have a, uh, have a great day. Have a lovely day. Bye-bye. And once again, thank you so much to the lead actor, writer, and overall brainchild behind The Living Weight. So thank you, Mr. O'Connell, for that. Or should I say, as I think you are, Mr. Banu. I don't know how my life it could get better from this moment. It's, uh, we can get a, it's, a, it's a very somber moment for me. Uh, I don't know how I can move on from this. Uh, I don't know how. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for ruining the rest of my life.
Okay. And with that being said, talk about room for improvement while we're going to be getting David some help. With that being said, guys, uh, room for improvement. This is this, uh, the area where we're very brutally honest about the film. And we say one thing that we could change about it if we could change it. And for me, um, I thought long and hard about this as in much time as I've had. If I could change one thing about this, I would change the the marketing that this film got. That's what oh, I would okay. do. Okay. Cool, cool. Whoa. So, I, what the f- was he going to f- jump on me or some sh- like that? Like, we talked about this sh- in post. I mean, pre-production. No, I would just really change the marketing because, again, I didn't see it, uh, the marketing campaign or anything like that. And to see that this had a $500,000 budget, I just really feel like when you're doing a certain film, you have to realize who you're doing a film for. And so I think it was unfairly reviewed on the... The, the you know the Rotten Tomatoes of the world because again you have your critics who are reviewing every genre of film and mm-hmm. then you also have your fans who are seeing the film for a specific reason and like you say you only really figure uh, found the the Living Wake or Michael Connell through li- uh, looking up Jim Gaffigan and when you yeah. found his stuff and that led to this is like you went down that rabbit hole so for me I would just change the fact that not a lot of people know about this and I think a lot of people would be find this genre very appealing so that's the one thing i would change about how the marketing was done and i just wish that more people were able to see it thank you thank you it's touching mm-hmm. uh i also wouldn't change a thing about the production or movie itself um and yeah i wish i wish more people had the opportunity to find out about it um which is a big reason why we're doing this episode. Check it out on Amazon Prime. And don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe, subscribe. And subscribe. Um, What I would like to take the time for this segment to say is that I I hope to experience that lightning in a bottle like this one more time before I pass. Um, I hope this isn't the last feature that O'Connell pens a character for that he himself brings to life. I hope there's a mega producer out there that sees the living wake and they're like i don't i don't care about the public uh, the overall universal ability to have a positive public reaction to this this is a great film i want to do something like this with these people again um because i I don't want to see a sequel or anything like that but i would love to see i would love to see what this team working together could uh, would do um if given the opportunity to do so I concur. I concur. Um, all right, so... F- given. One, f- two, f- three, f- four, f- five. F- how many f- do we give the living wake? I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go last because I'm really interested to hear uh, how many f- you f- with this film. I am going to make it short and sweet and say I gave this film three and a half. And the reason why I gave the film three and a half, of course, like it's that I'm not going to say that it was my cup of tea. But what I will say is I enjoyed the journey of walking down. It's almost like somebody asking you, hey, you ever tried sushi? Like, oh, I heard that's nasty. And then you get into it like, no, it's just different. And, mm-hmm. you know, I want to see more. I want to know more. And like I say, and again, the, the I, you know me, I always do an average script wise. I mean, when I say dialogue wise, A plus. 
I could not have asked for anything dialogue-wise different. When it comes to courage, I gave them a four for, of course, like I say, being able to be doing the hard job of combining a stage play, um, freaking putting a marching band in him. We talked to him later about how that was an editor's nightmare to do that. So like, I give them credit for that. Overall acting, I will say this. I gave, the, of course, uh, outside of Eisenberg and O'Connell, I felt like, the act it they they put the bar so high they didn't even allow anybody else to be able to reach a B level to me and I'm not saying that these other actors aren't aren't great but again you can only do what the script allows so to me that's why I was like okay I get it they're so powerful so to me I'm sorry I'm sorry are you the the funeral director the liquor smith oh no these the are great librarian. characters they are they are but again at the end of the day. Because we spend so much time with O'Connell. The meatloaf in the pocket, the roast beef in the pocket. Oh no! Oh, you talking about the ballerina, retired <laughs> ballerina guy? And I'm not. I'm not taking anything from that away. I'm saying that. See, I see. I think you're missing my point. I'm saying that O'Connell. He was your favorite actor. He, O'Connell and Eisenberg were so great. Okay. That 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 like the gap was there, but it wasn't a bad gap. Like I didn't want everybody else trying to compete with them. The other the other sub characters were there and they held their own. They just there was not enough screen time for even to even get where these other guys were. At. So it was not there for them to get for. But to me, I still have to say, I can see to learning that and it makes sense. Learning that he didn't get his due just because as we learned, it was a two, uh, two hour film that was cut down to about ninety minutes. I can't fully flesh this out for what it would have been. So from what I was given. What I saw and how I enjoyed it, and I thought honestly, when the, within the first five minutes, I thought it was going to be. Uh, I wasn't going to give it a. F I thought it was going to be a fist, mm -hmm. but then ninety minutes later, I'm at three and a half. F I think that's great, and that's where I landed at. And also, you notice what I gave Tenet as well, three and a half. So yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, that's so I'm consistent with that. Too. Sure. Yeah, it, it takes a lot to get my. Uh, you know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> a fistful of f for this one, and are you surprised? I get a that's fistful. That's how you fist. You got to. Uh, tell me how to fist. <laughs> I'll fist however I want to fist. It re from the mo the first time I saw this to when I watched it this weekend to prepare for this episode, it 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 still it registered with me then. It still registers with me now the same way. It it connects on so many levels, and it's hard to find a movie that one can do that and two can do that over the span of over 10 years where you can go back and watch something and it's so timeless that you still feel like it's speaking to you um, but as you grow as a person you take different things from it so it is a um, it's not a universal film for everybody but if it is for you it's for you universally timelessly uh, it was perfectly absurd uh, like I said before, it's a nice approach to dealing with heavy-handed subjects that we don't like to think about, but it allows you to explore ideas like death and things like that without and death of self and your own self-awareness and being okay with who you are in the world. All of these, all of these things don't sound funny at all, but this movie makes them not just not just hilarious to think about, um, but you also get. Uh, it, it's just really, it's sneakily intelligent. It, it, the intelligence of it really is just, it comes out of nowhere. You don't expect it. So yeah, I highly recommend The Living Wake. And I, I you could check it out on Amazon. Give it 90 minutes of your time. And decide if you are one of the ones out there that are, are going to enjoy this movie. And I promise you, if you are, you're really, 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 really going to enjoy it. So that is 
is given. Let's move on to coming attractions. What do we have next week, Mr. Royal? Next week, we dive into a game of mystery to see lust, love, drugs, money, guns. Round and round we go. Round and round we go. Let me hear you say. Uh, no, that won't be a little Uncle Luke. But no, we're doing the movie Rounders starring Matt Damon and Edward Norton. And when I tell you guys we're going to do a very, very deep dive on that, just be prepared. We're going all in on Again, Rounders. Again, this goes back to the gambling problem I mentioned Strategic wagering. Strategic yeah. wagering. I haven't seen this movie since I worked at Hollywood Video as a teenager. And it was one of those films that took up, like, the whole shelf. Um, I watched it then. I think it was, like... 18, 17, 18, or something like that. Have not seen it since. Love Matt Damon. Extra love Edward Norton. So I am definitely excited to dive back into this one and and check it out. I think I've seen it at least literally, uh, you know, fact check me. I've seen this at least, at this point, at least 24 times. Damn. Yeah. Okay, so I got some catching up to do. A little bit. This will be my third time watching it. A little bit. Um, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of That's the trailer um subscribe share hey where can they find us at guys thank you very much have a great week we will see you next thursday check out the highlights this tuesday tell your friends about us tell your prostitutes about us tell your nanny that you love about us tell the whole world about us do not let us go marching into the abyss without the world knowing who we are and what we do thank you very much Thank you again to Mr. Mike O'Connell for making my dreams come true this episode. It's all downhill from here. Have a great week, everybody. Hey, Ma, send us out. That's the trailer.